you know, I'm a veteran. I, I get, you know, thank you for your service all the time. I want people, hey, if you really appreciate what I did, just vote. I don't care how you vote. Just vote. Make an informed vote. Hey there, welcome to Louisiana Farm Life, a podcast where we talk with real farmers about who they are, what they grew, and the struggles that they face on and off the farm. We'll also talk about what they enjoy doing when they're able to get away from the farm. I'm your host, Carl Wiggers. I met this episode's guest a few weeks ago during a seminar for my LSU Ag Leadership class in Northwest Louisiana. And if you're familiar with that part of the state, you know there's a ton of forest land up there. Today's guest makes his living in those forests. He's a forester, a graduate of the Ag Leadership Program, a graduate of Louisiana Tech, and he's also a Marine. He's extremely down-to-earth and loves talking about his industry and the struggles that it faces right now in Louisiana. We talk about those struggles and his love for the woods, how he works to leave timber tracks better than he found them, and the importance of voting when you have the chance. We cover a lot of ground. I hope you enjoy getting to know Trey Jingles on Louisiana Farm Life. Trey Jingles. Yes. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Um, you're an interesting guy. You spoke with my ag leadership class. You're an alumni of that program. What were you, class 11, 12, 13? Bobby knows. I don't remember. We were, we were the best class that ever was. The best class that yeah. ever was? Okay. <laughs> every every other alumni that's, that would come and talk to us be like, y'all's class is good, but ours is better. Of course. And I think it was, I think it was class 14. 14. So what y'all? Y'all, South Africa. Yeah, yeah what, that was what, two trips, two classes ago. We're 16, so it's class 14. Yeah. So you're 14. Y'all yeah. went to South Africa on yes. trip. We're going yes. to Japan and Thailand. Yep. You spoke to our class the other day about um, about the timber industry, but you also shared some insights about Japan, so thank you for that. You are a forester mm-hmm. by trade. Tell yes. me about how, so, how that is, what, what, you, so what you do. I work for a company called West Rock. We have uh, one, one big paper mill here in uh, Louisiana at Hodge, and my job is to – help the regional fiber supply manager, my boss, procure wood for the mill. We, we source wood for our mill two ways. We have gate wood uh, or open market, and then we have a stumpage program. The The gate wood or open market guys, they're dealing with all of the timber small timber companies around North Louisiana, North Louisiana and South Arkansas. Okay. So most timber companies have two or three foresters or timber buyers. They have you know anywhere from two to four six logging crews, some of them, some of them more, but they go directly to the land or they buy their timber and then they have a delivered price that they deliver to our mill. <clears throat> and our Gatewood forcers work with their forcers to come up with that delivered price, monitor the flow of tons coming into the mill, monitor their quality, uh, help them with uh, maintaining their best management practices and all that stuff. So they're our Gatewood forcers are an intera- interface between us and those timber companies that deliver to us. Okay. My job within that is to be a miniature timber company. So I have myself, a guy named Kevin Smith, and another forester named Luke Coleman. And our job is to buy timber directly from landowners. And then we have six to eight contract logging crews. It's our full-time logging force that cut exclusively for us and deliver that product to our mill. Got you. So I'm a miniature timber company within West Rock's Forest Resources Group at Hodge. So what what, what West West Rock is essentially a mill? 
yes, we make craft paper. So if you had a piece of cardboard, if you cut it and looked at it, the side, there's a top piece, a bottom piece, and a wavy piece in the middle. We make the roll of paper that goes to a corrugation plant that makes that piece of cardboard. Okay, cool. So it's called craft. It looks like a grocery bag, but it's a little bit thicker. Okay, neat. Do you ever, uh, I mean, what, 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 what cardboard boxes, I mean, any cardboard box? If you've box? eaten the pizza, we made the box. Okay, there you go. That's yeah. kind of cool. So I've, I've talked to other people at paper, paper mills that say, well, if you had a Bud, Bud Light out of a, out of a Bud Light box, right. that came from my and, and like our competition graphic packaging, that they make what's called, I'm not sure what they call it, but we call it wet strength. So it's a, a beer box. Mm -hmm. It's made out of paper, but it's got wax on it so it can stand up to the cold to beer sweating. Yeah. You Interesting. Know, um, so y'all making pizza boxes, right? Amongst other things. Yeah, and, we, and so we don't. We our mill just produces a big roll of paper. Gotcha. And then it goes to another manufacturing facility and gets further manufactured. Yeah. So so it's like a uh, I guess maybe cotton. You could maybe draw the parallel with cotton. You know, coming out of a gin as a raw product and going to become thread. Right. Then going to become exactly. Clothes. So we're making. We're basically making the thread. That would go to a place that makes bed sheets or gotcha. whatever. Okay, cool. Yeah. So very interesting. So you are also just, a career just marine. A marine. Yeah. Where did that come in? Did that come in before forestry? Yeah. Okay. So when I graduated from high school, I enlisted. Uh, we lived in New Orleans, um, and uh, I left home at eighteen. Did four years on active duty, then uh, decided I was going to get off of active duty and go to college. So I came back, ended up back at Louisiana tech or back in North Louisiana. Cause that's my, my family's from around Cachata. Mm -hmm. My dad had moved to new Orleans for a, a job when I was young. And so we, I grew up in basically in both places. I would stay down there during school. And as soon as school was out, I would spend the summers at my grandparents in Cachata. Mm -hmm. And so when my dad retired, while I was gone that first four years, they moved back to North Louisiana. So I just came back here to go to school. Um, and I started out in environmental science, um, and then I changed to uh, ag business. I actually went to Northwestern for a little while and then came back to tech and, and uh, started and, and finished in forestry. Um, what was it about forestry that kind of sucked you in? <clears throat> the, the, the biggest thing, so, so the first, my first college class, okay, um, in a military school environment, it's very strict. You know, you, you, you're there on time, you know, the, the instructor's there, he's ready. Uh, my first college class, I got there early enough to turn the lights on in the class. This is literally the first college class I'd ever been to in my life. It was an eight o'clock class. I got there at like seven 40, turned the lights on in the class and thought, you know, okay, so I'm here early. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. Cause if you're on time, you're late. I sat there and I, I think about 10 minutes after eight, People started showing up. Well, the first girl that walked in was literally in pajama pants, a T-shirt, and she had like fuzzy bunny slippers on and a baseball hat. And I thought, holy, you know, what 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 world am I in? And then short. So then people started showing up because I think it what is it 15 minutes if the professor's 15 minutes yeah, late. I don't, you, I don't you can leave true, and you don't get counted for. So people started stacking into the class between 810 and say 814. Well, at 815. The professor came in and he was very much the stereotypical college professor. And his first, the first thing he said was my, in a, in a very 
um, mild voice. My goal was to make you gentle and scholarly. And I was sitting there thinking, like, what, what planet am I on? That's not the goal in marine in no. education. So, <clears throat> so um, I stayed in that for a little while, and then I changed to ag business. Uh, and then um, most of the first part of ag business was poultry, and we went to a poultry uh, plant in Natchitoches. And when I walked out of there, I said, there's no way I'm going to get a college degree and work in a place like this. Nothing against chicken. It's great. I'm not working. I'm not wearing a hairnet, rubber boots, and a lab coat to work. I'm not <laughs> doing it. I talked to some people and found out about forestry and found out that Tech had a forestry program. So I came over and talked to the dean of the college and came back to Tech and started forestry school and loved it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I liked it because we were outside a lot. Um, it was a, it was a small group of people on campus. Nobody really knew what we did. Um, but it was just, it just seemed like fun, fun work. So, yeah. um, that, that's kind of how I, I drifted. You know, I, I think most people, it's rare. I think when somebody starts college and knows exactly what they want to do and does exactly what they want to do through the four, it's, I, I don't ever, I've never talked to a person that started school to be whatever and stayed there and did it and. That was change. me. I, I was not that guy. So I, I wasn't either. <clears throat> but um, so I stayed, but I stayed in the res- Marine Corps Reserve the whole time that I was in college. And then when I graduated, um, I went back, got my commission and, uh, you know, became an officer in the Marine Corps. But I always would come home and like mark timber for somebody or help somebody cruise. or So I stayed tied to the people that I went to forestry school with. So when I finally got off of active duty the last time, I was able to come back and basically go right to work. So, so um, you were able to keep your skills up. It, it, right. What, what are the skills? I'm, I'm the ignorant row crop kid. What are the skills of a forester? What do you, what kind of stuff are you doing? So when you say these, like, you know, cruising you're, you're, you're doing a lot of navigating, like driving to some weird place out in the middle of nowhere, finding the, the property that you're going to be, evaluating the timber on or whatever you're doing. And then there's a lot of measurements or inventory type skills. So you have to land nav or navigate. Um, and then being able to do forced inventory inventories. Um, and just that's coming up with a volume of byproduct of what you're either going to help somebody sell or you're going to buy from them Mm -hmm. and just measuring, measuring and counting trees. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, more complicated than yeah, that. Of that's course, that's of course. you know, but it's just, I think it's the same. I think they do essentially the same thing in row crops where they have a way to measure a smaller area than a full like acre. A and then the, yeah, they take in samples, yeah. statistical samples, and figuring out okay, if there's this much in two square feet, how much is in 500 acres? Mm-hmm. So, and forestry is the same, same kind of thing. So you'll sample a little, yeah, exactly, right, a small, small area. And, Got you. So, what was it? I mean, how how did those kind of obviously you like being outside you like having to use your skills to navigate you know into uh, right. the middle of some woods right what did you bring from the marines into that other than knowing you know knowing your way with the gps um I, you know the, the the biggest thing to me was people you know the, the marine corps is made up of you know there were, i served with people from every state in the u.s and then there were some people like there was a kid in the unit that I was in right before I got out to go to college who his uh, family 
had basically snuck out of Czechoslovakia. And this kid lived in a, a refugee camp in Italy for two years and then somehow made his way to the U.S. and was able to enlist in the Marine Corps. So that's the kind of – so you, my point is you're exposed to people from all walks of life. I mean, there were – like – and here's an example, um, another example. Uh, a lot of the Marines from New York City, they were older, 21, 22 years old, never had a driver's license. A country kid's going to start driving when he's 10 mm -hmm. because he's helping on a farm. He may not get his license till he's 15 or 16, but he's been driving for a long time. Yeah. Well, there was there were Marines that I was in that they always had a they got on the subway or walked. They didn't need a driver's license. Totally One, a walk of life. Right, right. One, you, there's nowhere to park your car. Two, it may get stolen, and you just don't need it. You can get around as good on a train or walking. Mm -hmm. So they just you know that that's the kind of stuff. And then so just the differences in people and having to work with all those people. Um, to me, that's, that's probably the, the biggest intangible skill that being in the military or the Marine Corps helped with the timber business. And then the reason that I love the timber business is the, everybody that I deal with on a day to day basis was in college with me, mm -hmm. you know? And so you just, <clears throat> that group of people now were scattered out over the state and, those are the people that I contact when we run into a challenge or something good's happening or, or, or you just need news about something. All the people that I'm talking to are people that I knew from college. Mm -hmm. So it just makes it easier when you're talking to somebody you know. Yeah. and the, but, but there's also times, though, where you're, you're dealing with a lot of contract. You're dealing with truck drivers. You're dealing with oh, yeah. mills where there might be somebody with – you might be butting heads. Right. But you still got to work with them. Exactly. And that's something you probably took from the Marines. I'm oh, sure. yeah, exactly. And, and you know <laughs> – and this is something we were talking about earlier, but like you, you know, at work, I was talking to a guy that worked with me the other day and I, and I said, you know, you got to look at this as like being in a lifeboat. You know, you were on a ship, it sank, you got forced into this boat because it's either that, it's either sink or swim. And you're, now you're in this boat with people you may not like or care about, but you all have a common goal. And until you get to another boat or the island, you got to work together. So the the common interest of survival and business is survival business is warfare it's just slowed down mm -hmm. you know people are making a living if you don't make a living you will die <laughs> and, and so it's we just take a break at night where when you're fighting it's 24 7 yeah and it's that's a condensed life but business is that it's the struggle of man it's the same cavemen did the same thing they had to get up and go find something club to eat well, now we have to get up to go do something to pay the guy that's clubbing something to eat. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? But yeah. it's, it's the same thing. Yeah. No, Just a few years down the road. Yeah. There, there's not that much difference between us and them. Yeah. So. Um, but it's a valuable skill, though. It's, it's valuable just people, skill. you know. Um, and, and sometimes you have to go along to get along. You yeah. know, and knowing um, the older I get, the more I realize the power of positive leadership. It's easy to be negative sometimes it's hard to get people to focus on hey let's just solve the problem mm -hmm. and people get caught up in and I'm, I'm guilty of this too people get caught up in their ego or their pride or whatever it's like hey what do we got to do to fix the problem um and and um the older i get the more i realize that the more positive you stay most generally that tends to work better than not 
Now, is that is that another skill from from the Marines? I I, I think it. Yeah, I think so. Um, just that I, to me, I just call it knowing people. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah. Well, in in the timber industry, and this is something this is an industry that I will own a hundred percent that I am quite ignorant about. Right. I don't know if I made that clear earlier whenever I was asking what it is to cruise timber, but right. It's something I don't know anything about, but it's also the state's number one ag industry, ag commodity. Right. Um, that, and that's what, not, not to stop you, but that's one thing about that I was talking to Dr. Swallow about yesterday. Every class struggles to find a forester to get in the class. Mm-hmm. And, and my class was no different. I was literally the only forester that was in there. And there was another guy um, who worked for a land company, but he really was not. He was more on the business side of it. Yeah, that's all we've got in ours. So I've never... That's a mystery. It boggles me. your mind. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's just crazy that it's one of the, it's the biggest by pretty good margin. Oh yeah. Industry, uh, ag commodity in the state. I think it's what, 12, 13 billion dollars. Yeah, I think if you take all the other agricultural stuff in Louisiana and put it together, it's not even half of what the timber business is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's heads and shoulders. Right. right. Um, but it's kind of one of those, it, it's also, a thousand percent different in oh, yeah. my head. Oh, yeah. There is common ground between the two, uh, between timberland and also, you know, growing a corn crop. Right, right. Um, but what what is it like, I guess, working in an industry that when you got a 30-year cycle or 35 or 40-year cycle on the crop? Okay, so it is different in that, you know, like your ro- crop rotation age for us is, I think it's, I think when I was in school, they were using 32 or 35 years um, but I think the, the biggest thing is, is you kind of recognize that what I'm doing today, somebody else is going to reap the rewards of later. Now, when I was right out of college, I didn't really think that way, mm-hmm. but the older I get, the more I start realizing, cause now I've been around long enough now to where I can go class past a place that I clear cut and help replant. And now I'm going back and thinning that. That's when you start realizing like, okay, you know, as I get towards the end of my career, there'll be clear cuts in places I've done timber harvest or purchase timber that the next time that happens, I'm not going to be here, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think it's good for us as an industry because it makes you realize, I think it makes you more aware of doing the right thing. The people behind you are dependent on you. Correct. Yeah. Um, That's something that, that I think that's one of those common threads. I mean, Yes, you're still watching your crop grow and you're managing that crop right with thinnings and with, you know, prescribed burns and all those different types of management practices. Right. The same way a farmer will, you know, put out pesticides if he needs it or, you know, whatever exactly. it may be. But there's also that that common thread of conservation and taking care and doing what's right, like you just said. Exactly. There's that. I mean, that's something that any farmer I've ever spoken with it's on the front of their mind because maybe not the forester coming behind them, but maybe their children are right, coming right. behind them. And it's probably the same with some landowners too. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. it's the investment for the future. Oh yeah. So absolutely. How big, how big is that become? I know it's something that's very front of mind for a lot of people that are dealing maybe in the produce or in, you know, you know, livestock type industry mm-hmm. where, you know, the customer is the one eating the food kind of different but is it still something that's um 
real for the timber industry as far as oh, conservation uh, and sustainability and uh, things uh, like absolutely. that? Absolutely. So like at the at just the personal level, and I, and I'll use our my company West Rock as an example. We we don't own an acre of land, um. So when we're dealing with landowners or their consulting foresters and just the general public, because we don't own any land, you know, we, in my opinion, are really kind of, and not forced, probably is not the best word, but we're encouraged because we don't own any land to do the right thing because I'm going to have to go back. If I buy your first thinning today and it takes us 12 months to cut it, well, then five to seven years from when we finish cutting it, you're going to want to thin it again. Mm-hmm. Well, I've now been in this position long enough to where I'm now going back and buying tracks from landowners a second time that I cut their timber five years ago. So it's in your best interest to do it well and right. to take care of the and, place. And then, and then just like with a farmer, and I know we talked about this earlier, but you know, like if you owned a car factory, let's say you made a car. You, you wouldn't intentionally destroy that car factory. Well, why would I not be an environmentally minded person? Because the dirt or the, the earth is what we're, is growing our crop. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do at the personal level, you're, we're in, you're just from that, you're encouraged to do the right thing. And then we're uh, audited on just about everything, but we are, uh, our, our paper products are, um, certified FSC, SFI, um, American tree farmer. Um, but, but we have to do certain things and prove that we do them to maintain those certifications. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're incentivized by our corporate customers who want a certified paper product to come from certified wood so there's just the forester that's out there looking after, you know, a harvest on somebody's land mm-hmm. that he's, you're going to sit next to the guy you bought his timber from at church to, you know, hey, when Pizza Hut buys our boxes, they want to know that it's a certified, that box is made by certified forest products. Gotcha. Meaning that the certification is our way of proving that we've done things in an environmentally sound way yeah so that's cool and that's something that i feel like could easily be missed in the just because of the products i mean you mentioned it it's like the thread there's so many different levels of production that has to happen with right with the forest products i mean it goes back to the very beginning the landowner is taking care of that land the forester right. that's on it i just think it's, i think it's cool because it's Harder to see, maybe I guess. And here, here's another here's another thing that that's really starting to occur. So, the land base in this area was, and this is kind of a Trey's history lesson, but you had a generation that came back from Europe or the Pacific after World War II, and they either inherited land or they bought land. Okay, then they either farmed it or they had a job and they they had that land for recreational purposes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, those people are starting to die. Well, their kids came up in a lower to middle middle class family. They went to college. They got a job in marketing or 
they're a computer guy. Well, now they don't live in Louisiana. They live in Colorado or California or Texas or Kansas. And so now instead of dealing with their dad, the old crusty veteran, now I'm having to call his three kids who are working in white collar jobs, maybe, or yeah, he's a computer guy with Apple in Silicon Valley and he knows nothing about forestry and you start talking about cutting trees down and people don't always react positive to that. Mm -hmm. We need to be environmentally conscious and know what we're talking about to be able to explain, Hey, to keep the timber on your property healthy, you need to do certain practices. Mm -hmm. And Oh, by the way, doing those things, you're going to make money off of. Yeah. And we're going to do it in an environmentally sound way. So the, the the paradigm is shifting from the people that bought that land to now people that have inherited it and they don't live in Louisiana anymore. So they're not around this business, this industry all the time. They're scattered out all over the country and they see things differently. Mm-hmm. In, in my opinion, as, as that shift continues we're going to have to go back to the old landowner assistance model where you have a bunch of foresters that are that are maintaining relationships directly with those landowners and explaining to them why what they're doing or what we're doing is in their best interest. Yeah. And it's in Almost the environment's best interest. to them taking care of their Correct. land. Correct. <clears throat> yeah. Exactly. Because the, land, the landowner base is changing. Mm-hmm. The people that grew up in the, in the, in the depression knew or they understood – the importance of growing trees, they are being replaced by people who the value of the tree has gone from monetary to recreational or just being able to look at it. And they have more of a sentimental value of that tree mm-hmm. and they don't want you to cut it down. What well, one of the things that's interesting to me, and I didn't know this, I didn't learn this until the Ag Leadership Program, was how much actually like, Managing a, some timberland, man, managing a forest is actually good for the wildlife in that within that forest. Right, and that's one of the things I think would, would I mean, also kind of plays into that. Like, hey, you know, it's in the best interest of the white-tailed deer or of whatever wildlife may be in there. Right, and that's one of the. It's just neat. So, yeah. can you explain some of that and how yeah, that well, works? So, foresters, and and this is another. This goes back to the college thing, or why I picked forestry. Forestry is. Unlike a lot of other sciences, I can I can talk about something and then I can go get you in my truck and take you somewhere and show you the proof of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so foresters and, and logging when we're cutting trees, we're mimicking the same thing that Mother Nature does. So let's say you took a bulldozer and just cleared off. 40 acres of land somewhere and just didn't do anything. Well, the first thing that would pop up would be little grass and what we call weeds and stuff. Then you would start seeing trees coming up. Well, you're either going to have too much or too little. Most places out in the woods, you'd probably have too much. In other words, there'd be other big trees around there that would see that blank land in and you'd have thousands of tree stems per acre because they're, they're, they're coming. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time for that to self-thin where forestry practices is you're going to plant, let's say, 
600 trees to the acre or 800 trees to the acre, whatever you decide you're going to plant. Well, when those trees start growing, <clears throat> we talked about this a little bit in the woods yesterday. Those trees are growing. They're reacting to sunlight. Okay. If it's an, if it's a tree that's grown out in the middle of a pasture, leaves grow trees. So it's going to put as many leaves. It's going to make as much surface area to get as much sunlight as it can. So if it's getting sun from all sides, it's going to grow limbs and leaves everywhere. It's going to look like a big bush, mm -hmm. which is why you see like a big oak tree out in a pasture. It looks like a bush. Bigger, but that's what it looks like. Yeah. It's getting sun from all directions. A tree that's grown tightly in a stand of other trees, it's racing those other trees to get up to the sun. So it's got a long, tall, straight bowl or stem with a tuft of leaves on the top of it. Mm -hmm. Well, at some point they start stagnating because there's too many mouths eating out of the same plate. So when that happens to keep your growth, if you plotted the growth of trees on a graph, it would go up and then it would start, it would stagnate because mm -hmm. now there's too many mouths eating out of the same plate. So you go in and remove they shade some each of other those out. trees. They shade each other out. They're competing also for not just light, but for water nutrients out of the soil. So you go in there and cut, let's just say for general purposes, a third of those trees off of that out of an area Mm -hmm. And the rest of the trees that are left now have less competition and they start growing. And so they, the race is on again. Well, then they get to a point where the canopy closes. There's less sunlight getting to the floor and they start slowing down again. So every time they slow down, a forester thins it. You're, so you're getting the same result that you would get over 100 or 200 years done naturally. You're getting there quicker. Mm -hmm. So we're mimicking the same thing. People people talk about <clears throat> clear cutting is not natural. Well, Mount St. Helens, when it erupted in whatever year it erupted, it, it clear cut thousands, millions of acres. Mm -hmm. A hurricane, a tornado, a forest fire, that's clear cut. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. You, you mentioned forest fires, and that's, let's not get too political, but right. I'm, I've been to California with our ag leadership mm -hmm. trip this yep. past summer. You've been... Mm -hmm. You've seen it as a forester. You understand it's a different climate, a different regulatory climate over oh, there. Absolutely. And it's not just California. It's the Western U.S. All the Western U.S. is that way? Yeah. And and, and it goes back to, so in, in the Southeast, I think it's like 80% of the land is owned by private landowners. Well, when you get out West, when we settled the West, the government owned the land and then they either gave it as an incentive to get people to settle the West or people just went out there and basically claimed it. Mm -hmm. But most of the land in the Western U S is owned by the federal government. That's when the States are square because mm -hmm. they just squared it off and said, Hey, we're going to call that Colorado or whatever. So the politics of it is different because there's less people tied directly to that land mm -hmm. here. People own it. They're tied to it out there. It's just the public's land. And the Fort U.S. Forest Service and the BLM and those those agencies are not always allowed because of political reasons to do what most would consider sound forest practices like mm -hmm. prescribed burning. Um, I had a professor at Tech talk about Smokey the Bear and how that was the worst thing that ever happened to the Western forest because, you know, everybody wants to prevent forest fires. Well, those kids that learned from Smokey the Bear that forest fires are bad are now voting 40-year-olds 
that live in Silicon Valley and they don't want to look out and see something burning. Mm -hmm. But what they don't realize is that fire is just like rain. It's a weather phenomenon and forced burn. And that's sometimes if it's done the right way is a healthy thing. So how would it be healthy? I mean, I know, I feel like I understand you're pretty much mm-hmm. taking all the fuel away, right? Yeah. you're. So if you never burn and you keep a fire out of an area, you, you're, the trees are dropping leaves on an annual cycle. Things are dying so that the fuel load starts building up. Well, out west, there's not as many roads. There's not as, many, there's not as much water. And then there, there's a lot more fuel on the ground because they don't let them do prescribed burns to take that fuel load, reduce that fuel load. So when it starts burning, it it's burning excessively hot. And that's kind of an oxymoronic thing to say, like you have a cool fire and a hot fire, there is a difference. And so if you've burned, if you've done controlled burns, you've reduced the fuel load. So if you do have an, a wildfire, a fire that wasn't set in such a way that it can be contained, then you have these massive fires that destroy everything. Mm-hmm. It's uncontrollable. But fires. even those, even those fires, like I've been through uh Raton Pass in south uh southeast New Mexico, Raton Raton Pass, Raton Pass, I think it's Raton. Um, and some other places out there where you can tell, man, that this place burnt up, mm-hmm. but things are growing again. Yeah. And, and so it, it's a natural, it's a natural cycle, but if you can kind of keep it where it has less destructive power, you're reducing the amount of time it takes to get back to what people enjoy. Most people, most people enjoy a mature four stand with very little understory. Mm-hmm. Understory That's being being little bushes and yeah, brush. thickets. Thick, okay. Um because it's easy to walk around. You can see you a can long see way. Through it. Yeah. But that's not always the healthiest thing, you know. Um but a, a forest fire here, you know, you, you're reducing the fuel load, you're reducing some of the unwanted species, and then after a fire, you go out after a fire, and literally a week or two weeks after a fire, you have all these little plants coming up. Well, that's the stuff deer like to eat. Mm. And then not not to mention you've put nitrogen back in the soil, so you're making the soil healthier and more productive. Um, so that that's the one of the benefits of fire. Yeah. Um, it's just interesting because it's one of those things that on the surface – you think, oh, fire running through a forest, like Smokey the Bear says, is wrong. Right. It's terrible. But it's actually a, it's a good management practice if and, done. Yeah, control. and the reason that – and the state is – there's an ongoing effort that's been going on for a while to return a lot of the state to its natural longleaf pine plantations. Well, that longleaf pine has to have fire to keep it healthy. It, it comes – when it's – start sprouting it's in what's called the grass stage and when it's in the grass stage it has to be burnt mm-hmm. to make it start growing like a tree hmm. they have serotonous cones on them that won't open up unless there's heat from a fire to make those cones open up hmm. to drop the seeds out and the reason that we had those plantate or those stands of longleaf pine is because the indians burnt the woods to help them hunt wow you know? so, so it's, it's an ancient so it's, thing. it's natural fire yeah. in the woods is a just like rain or sunshine it, but smoky the bear fire in woods is bad influenced the generation and then they started voting and then they started protesting 
and they influence the Forest Service to not do what it should do. Huh. And so now you have a fire in California that burns up a bunch of people's houses. They don't realize they probably contributed to that. It comes back to an education thing that you were talking about exactly. earlier. Exactly. We talked about this yesterday. Insurance rates are ridiculous. And you gave a great anecdote of a story about a trucker. And that's just one of the challenges, but it all comes back to education. Am I right? Oh, yeah. So the, the two biggest challenges that we're, we're facing in the, the forest products industry right now are, are um, rural roads in the state of Louisiana and log truck insurance rates. So each and every forest products mill pays what's called a severance tax. When we sever a tree, <clears throat> depending on the product that that tree is going to become, there's a per ton tax that we have to pay. This year in the state of Louisiana for pine pulp, what is 46 cents a ton. So 46 cents a ton, just for ease of talking about it, let's say it's a dollar. So that dollar goes to the state. The state says 75 cents of that is going to go back to the parish the tree was growing in and was cut in. Mm -hmm. And we have to keep up with each track we're cutting by parish so we know who's going to get the money. Okay. And we get audited on that too. Um, so that's on the buyer? That's on the 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 end, the market. Okay. So when when that tree gets delivered to us, we have to know where it came from so we can take the taxes and send the tax, the severance tax for that tree to the state. Got you. Okay. The state says, okay, we got a dollar for this ton. We're going to take 25 cents of that and we're going to fund statewide forced forestry programs like the forest productivity program where they call share site prep and replanning for the landowners. Um, they fund things like the Hill research farm that y'all were at. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, some of it probably goes back to the state's forestry schools, but then 75 cents of that tax dollars goes back to that parish and it's for road maintenance in that parish. Okay. Mm -hmm. So over the last couple of years, those parishes, they needed money for roads. So we have a log truck going up and out of road. People see that and say, well, the log truck is tearing our road up. And the forest, forest products industry is not perfect. We've done some stuff where we didn't go back and fix the road or, or whatever. But for the most part, we do a good job of taking care of stuff. Mm -hmm. But we also pay that tax. And I have, you know, we, we get information from the, from the state on how much severance tax is paid in each parish. So as these parishes were needing money, they were looking at the two biggest industries oil and gas in some parishes and the timber industry and coming to us and saying, Hey, you're, you're messing up our roads. You know, we need to have a permit system and which really is just a fancy word for another tax mm -hmm. um, to use our roads. Well, what we figured out is we had to go back and educate our elected officials on the it, parish, be right? on a, at parish police jury level. They didn't even realize that they were getting money from the state from the timber business earmarked for road maintenance. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's been a challenge. Yeah. We would find out that, hey, you're going to have, we're, now we're going to start having to pay this or we're going to have to do this to, to be able to log in a certain parish after the fact. And we were able as an industry to go back to those parish government agencies and say, hang on a second. Do you realize that if you keep doing what you're doing, it's going to force us to do business somewhere else. Let us work with you to come up with a solution that's a good solution for everybody. Because, oh, by the way, last year, our industry sent you $800,000 to do road maintenance in your parish. Yeah. And if we don't do anything here because you've made it so restrictive, you can kiss that $800,000 goodbye. Yeah. And normally when people hear that and they realize with a little bit of education, hey, we're about to give up $300,000 that went to roads in a parish or whatever the number is, they start to listen. Yeah. Because a lot of the people complaining don't have to pay any taxes. If you get if you live in a rural setting, you have homestead exemption, you're not paying a direct tax that's going to go to help with the roads. Mm-hmm. But you have a business that's doing business in your parish that doesn't live in your parish. It's not taken away from it. It's actually put money into your parish. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to listen to them. Yeah. And, and and so we learned p- pretty quickly that we had to look at it from a standpoint of educating people and saying, hey, do you realize this is what we're doing? That's got to be pretty hard, though, because you probably feel like you're attacked. Oh, yeah. You're, it's you're frustrating. Like, you're back. It's frustrating because you hear an elected official say, hey, I'm getting together with all these other elected officials and we're fixing to we're fixing to put it to y'all like verbatim. I've heard a guy say that. And I said, do you realize what you just said? Like, are you are you listening to what you're saying? Mm-hmm. You have to guard against getting angry and come at it from a standpoint of, okay, let's take a deep breath. Let's talk about really what you're saying. And most of the time, with a little bit of effort, you can get people to see, hey, I'm not the enemy. I have to do business in your parish, but I'm already helping you do what you want me to help you do more with. Yeah. And, and isn't that enough already? Mm-hmm. So most of the time that those stories have ended on a positive note. Yeah. That then, kind of, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, and then the next thing is you talked about truck insurance mm. that that's, you know, all of these, all of our, our, our log enforcement have to have trucks to get that tree from the stump to the, to the end user, the mill. And, um, there's a whole lot of different factors, but over the last 18 months, what normally would have cost say $5,000 to insure that truck for a year now may be as much as 20 or $30,000. And part of that is the way that our drivers or truck owners were using those trucks. They weren't, you know, maintaining the records and different stuff. So when that truck was in a wreck, the insurance company had a million dollars that would be earmarked to settle a claim based off a wreck with a log truck. Well, the other guy's lawyer knew that million dollars was sitting there and they could muddy up the water asking for the driver's drug test. How often does he get drug tested? Let me see the truck's maintenance records. Has a guy done this, this, and this safety training? Did he do an inspection that day? blah, 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 Mm. blah, muddy up enough water to get the truck driver's insurance company to settle out of court because they didn't have a leg to stand on. So they got outlawed. Then that million dollars that was sitting there that earmarked now goes to this person. And there were people, there was a group of people over in Monroe that were literally running into log trucks, claiming the log truck hit them. 
to get it to go to court so they could get free money. Well, you can only do that. There's no such thing as free money. That money's coming from somewhere. Yeah. So if I'm paying, let's say I'm paying $5,000 for one truck to insurance company X. Well, if I have a log truck wreck and I have a $300,000 claim, but I've only paid $5,000, it doesn't take very long for that insurance company to go out, run out, they run out of money. They go out of business. So everybody's insurance rate gone up. And then you have, and I'm probably going to get unpolitically correct, but you have ambulance chasing lawyers all over the state. I mean, there's literally, when you come into Shreveport, there's a big billboard that says, and there's a lawyer on there. There's an 18-wheeler, and it says, I'll make them pay. There was, I know of, I know of a very big truck company that was literally considering moving their headquarters to Louisiana. And they were coming over here for a meeting and saw that sign. Said nope. And said, I ain't no way. Yeah. And that's that's just what's that's that's not just you know, And we have some very yeah, we have some very highly elected officials that are trial lawyers by trade. And I have friends that are attorneys and they're lobbying groups and political action committees of lawyers that are doing everything they can to keep things the way they are. And it costs money. So yeah. you have a guy that was paying five or $6,000 a year to run his log truck. Now he's paying 30. Well, that money's got to come from somewhere. So where does it come from? Well, he's got to drive a lot more. He's got to deliver a lot more tons with that truck. It makes our cutting or our logging rate goes up. Well, I say, Hey, our rates are going up. I have a budget I have to operate within. So now I can pay less to the landowner for his trees because I got more cost to cover. So it really goes back to the guy growing the crop mm-hmm. that's getting less. It goes back to the small guy. It goes back to the small guy. One of the things I've heard is, I mean, am I right? And there's only like one or two companies that leave and write insurance for those. those okay. So, trucks. so I, mean, I don't, I, there's companies getting out of the business. Yeah, well, they can't. They, they just decided that, hey, writing log truck insurance in Louisiana is not cost. It's not a benefit to it. So we're just not going to do it. Yeah. And I don't know the exact number, um, but I can tell you there's very few of them. Yeah. And the ones that are doing it are charging exorbitant amounts of money because they have to. To cover themselves. Because the insurance is a group of people putting their money together based off of statistics saying, okay, there's a thousand people putting money into this pool and we've figured out that two of us are going to need to pull money out X of this pool X number of times a year. Yeah. And so there's always this big pool of money. Well, if you flip that, there's not that many people doing it. And then every time one of those people has a problem, it pulls a lot of money out of that pool. It doesn't take long for the pool to dry. Mm-hmm. So it's just a mess. I mean, what's, I guess, what's the solution for, for truckers for well, the industry? So I, I can tell you what we did is once we knew this was coming, we, hosted an insurance forum with a, an, a local guy that deals in commercial insurance, so log trucks, construction, that kind of stuff. And he basically said, okay, it's coming. It's going to happen. This is why it's happening, and this is what you can do to reduce your exposure. You know, you've got to start – you've got to 
you got to make your driving force more professional. You got to maintain your records like a professional over the road trucking company does. It's so like a DOT. If a truck has a DOT number on it, they have a lot of lot stricter standards. They have to maintain records. They have to do all these different things. And he said, "Look, if you're gonna if you're gonna continue doing this, and you don't want your rates to go up every year, you're gonna have to do something to slow that rise and and reduce your exposure." So we just basically educated our loggers and said, "Hey." This is you're going to have to start doing this, and there's little things you can do. Like these guys were taking, they were driving log trucks home, so they were commuting in that truck. Well, the more miles that truck is on the road, chances are the more it's just more exposure. It's more exposure. Yeah. So little things like hey, have the truck go to a yard and let the guy drive his own car home. Um, Making sure that when they that truck goes out on the road, it's dispatched. It's got a good maintenance inspection done that day. It's got good maintenance records. Um, the driver's healthy. All the all those kind of it's things. It's really kind of really covering your, your, right. your back. So that they can go back to the insurance company and say, hey, we're doing all this stuff. So if this truck is in a wreck and you have to fight the wreck in court, here's all the records for that truck. Gotcha. So now you're giving their attorney the some ammo the the tools or the ammo that he needs to fight the opposing attorney to keep the money from changing hands gotcha. if that truck was not at fault little things like putting cameras on trucks putting gps trackers on trucks putting weight scales on trucks mm -hmm. those kinds of things um that's all the kind of little things that we were encouraging that logging force to do to keep their insurance rates from going up anymore yeah and and so that's what kind of we've had to do so uh, i guess is there is there any uh any light at the end of the tunnel is there any silver lining in all of this i mean i guess so now now i've got a and this is this is only trey jingles opinion until people in this state start really caring about who they vote for <clears throat> at the parish level and at the state level things are not going to change they're not if you keep sending the same guy up there by a different name that does the same thing the guy before him did, things are not going to change. They're not. And I, I've one of the things about living all over the country I've learned is Louisiana is very unique in a lot of ways, but we have a lot of things that we can learn from other states. People in other states vote a certain way and that yields a certain outcome and it, and it, and it influences their quality of life. We, haven't always done that here. Mm. And so if you gripe about the road you drive on, what I'm saying is in the big scheme of things, that's your fault. It's our fault because we've become accustomed to that being just the way it is. And I'm saying it doesn't have to be that way. You sound like you have a, an idea. Are you running for Congress? Running for, running <laughs> no, for state? No. Running for Paris no. level? And, and, and here's here's what, but but that that's that's a good question because, and I'm just kind of figuring this out. I'm slow, but like we're we're voting Saturday. This is the first election I've really cared about who's on the police jury, and, and it's because of, it's yeah because they're the ones they they have to see at the uh, you you heard people say all politics is local. The guy that I'm voting for, I'm going to run into at the grocery store. Well, if he's been an idiot, he doesn't want to go to the grocery store because he's got to live with me. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to run into the governor at the grocery store. Chances are. 
But I can run into the guy that does something that I think is dumb or does something that's good. I'm going to run into that guy. So there's a chance for more so accountability. One, know who he is. Yeah, he's accountable. He's he he got to live here. Mm-hmm. People just need to pay attention instead of just casting a vote. Like and that and, and that that's like you know I'm a veteran. I, I get you know thank you for your service all the time. I want people. Hey, if you really appreciate what I did, just vote. I don't care how you vote. Just vote. Make an informed vote. Mm-hmm. Going back to what I was talking about, like this is the first time that I've ever really cared about who is on the police jury, and it's because I really kind of have started to understand. Why that's important. Yeah. People just need to pay more attention. Yeah. Like you're talking about me running for office. I know what the I know what the US Constitution is. I've got two copies in my house. I when I'm watching the news, I flip through, I'll use it and be like, hey, they can't do that because that's not that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I've never read our state's constitution. Now, one thing I have noticed is that Louisiana has we, we make every law a freaking amendment. Mm-hmm. which is silly. And I know why they're doing it. They're doing it because it takes an even higher majority to get it changed what's in the, once it's an amendment. But look, think about how many times you voted and there were 10 amendments that you had to vote on. At the There's end. four this this That's election. silly. Why? Like, and again, this is just my uneducated opinion, but I'd like to get a copy. I mean, we're, so where do, you, where do you get a copy know. of our state's constitution? It's got to be somewhere, I would assume. Yeah. But see, I've never, that, even, I've never looked at it either. I'm, I'm, when I say it's our fault, I should know what that is. How many amendments are there? There's got to be. I bet our Constitution is that thick, and it yeah. shouldn't be. We ought to all have a copy of it. We ought to know what our rights are mm-hmm. so we can hold people accountable. And if it's that thick, we probably need to burn it and start over. <laughs> I mean, and I don't know that that's ever going to happen, but yeah. you may need to just start over, mm-hmm. you know, because now – We've gummed it up so much that you really can't figure out where the like where the problem is. You, or can't, how to you can't make any kind of a law without coming right. in conflict with three <laughs> right. or four others. And it, and it takes, you know, that they've they've created. This is why, and this is a soapbox thing. But I, I hate people say, "Man, I I hate attorneys." Well, I don't know about hate. Is that's probably not the. But most people dislike attorneys because you have to have an attorney to fight the other guy's attorney. And then attorneys grow up to be politicians that make laws to solve problems created by attorneys that only an attorney can fix. So it's like they have this industry that they create their own demand with. Mm-hmm. And that's why most people don't, they dislike, and I've got friends that are attorneys. Why do we allow politicians to create problems and then offer only solutions that maintain their power and never really fix the problem? Mm. I mean, think about that's what happens. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's an interesting perspective. Um, but we ought to, as, as citizens, we ought to know what, like, where's our, like, I don't even know how to find a copy of our constitution. That's a sad indictment of myself. Yeah. You're making me realize that, you know, like, I'm, I'm there. I'm right I there have you. the U.S. constitution because it's in a little, I bought one in Virginia and then, and then I bought a rifle from somewhere and they sent a copy of the constitution with the gun. Mm. So I've got several copies of that, but where's our state's constitution? What is the governing document for Lincoln Parish, the parish we're sitting in? Does it have, does the parish have a charter? Does it have a, what is the constitution like document at the parish level? Yeah. What is, what is the source document that a parish police juryman should reference when he's voting on something in his parish? Yeah. Where do you get that? 
See, all these, that's big, these are big questions. That's interesting. So when you're driving down the road, and I'm not saying you, I'm saying when we are driving down the road, griping about the road being bumpy, where do you start? Yeah. You start reading, you know? Yeah. And we're all guilty of it because we've accepted Louisiana being fifth on every bad list that comes out. We just say, oh, that's the way it's, that's the way it's, yeah, that's we the way suck it is. sometimes. Yeah. No, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. This is a, our state is wholly unique. In our culture and the natural resources that we have, but we're also unique in that we suck because we continue to suck. We don't, you don't have to suck all your life. Mm-hmm. We can change that. That's one thing about the state. If I could change it, I'd change it. And it starts with like, I'm going to try to figure out in the next month how to get me a f- copy of the Constitution. I'd like to I'm going to research that this evening. I want to know what our, where, where, what, par- what document governs a parish government. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know? Well, Trey, we've talked Marines, we've talked timber, we've now talked politics and local politics. One of the things I like about this podcast I want to do is talk about things not related to ag, but I feel like there's a lot of common things. What do you do when you're not, you know, uh, granted, you have a really cool job where you get to go out and cruise timber and drive around in your fine Jeep. (laughs) You're also, you know, Marine, so you have that job still. But Mm -hmm. what do you do when you're not... What's for, what, what does trade jingles do for fun? So um, I like to work out a lot. I like to shoot a lot. I like to travel. Like if I, if I won, who was I talking about this the other day? I was talking to somebody. I was like, you know, if I won the lottery, I, I don't think I would quit my job because I really like the people I work with. I would probably be hard to find on Tuesdays and or Thursdays and Fridays. Um, and I would want a lot of vacation, but I would travel a lot. But I mean, I'm a pretty simple creature. I like shooting. Um, I like to work out. I like hunting. Uh, oddly, I, I, I would rather like in if we're going to do it, hunt in Louisiana, I'd rather duck hunt and fish in Louisiana and then go deer hunting somewhere else just because I'm in the woods all the time and I just like to look at something different. Mm-hmm. But that's pretty much it. I mean, that's so that's kind of fishing. Mm-hmm. Good old country boy from Louisiana. Right. You that's know, and, and, and sadly, nobody gets to do it as much as they want to. But. Yeah, I'm the same way. I was raised doing it, but I don't. Yeah. I have to, for me to do it, I either have to get a lease around Baton Rouge right. where it's accessible or I have to go home and spend a weekend, two and a half hours. And see, we're lucky. <clears throat> Lincoln Parish has a really good, we have the Rustin uh, Gun Club. Mm-hmm. They have a really good range. It's like 10 minutes from here. So I can shoot almost every day if I want to. But hunting, I've got a friend of mine has a ranch out in Texas that we go out once or twice a year and deer hunt out there and it's just different it's mm-hmm. you know brush. open yeah open sagebrush open rolling terrain it's pretty mm-hmm. um, just because it's different and then um i have a couple of friends that uh have fishing charter businesses out of south louisiana so we go fishing down there and then uh we haven't had a hard time finding a place to duck hunt so yeah and that's one of the cool things about living here like it's on our license plates but i think people take it for granted it's truly a sportsman's paradise yeah you know you can do everything here yeah, you, you know. and you mentioned this also back going back to ag a little bit, but we are so diverse agriculturally. With, oh yeah, with our I mean our delta soil, we can grow whatever we want to. Absolutely, and we also have the sportsman's paradise. We yeah. have a lot, and the the culture of the state. Oh yeah, you know that. I mean, you can travel all over the world and probably not find as quite a uh, eclectic group as you no. can in Louisiana. So it kind of makes it going back to that point about. The, you know, politics and being on the, the those terrible lists. Right. It's a, it's a shame. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of embarrassing right. when you think about it. We have well, all yeah, this great stuff going for us, but yes. we have, but like literally there's no, 
and and I'm not trying to sound arrogant or, or different, but I've I've just been lucky and I've gotten to see a lot of different places in the world, and there is no place like Louisiana. There's no there's nowhere else like this place. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've been all over the world, and people talk about New Orleans like it's some fantasy place, and it really it really is. Now, I grew up in Kenner, so I'm from Shreveport, but we lived in Kenner when I was young, and so you kind of having lived down there, you kind of, you kind of took, or I personally, I began to take New Orleans and what it is for granted. And only after Katrina and going back after having lived in North Carolina and in different places in the States and going back to New Orleans after Katrina and kind of, it kind of took that for me personally to kind of re-fall in love with New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Now I can go down there. New Orleans is about a three or four night deal for me and then I just got to get back to the to the woods because this New Orleans is not my home um it's Louisiana but New Orleans is unique in the world you know it's up there with Rome mm-hmm. as far as people recognizing it for what its uniqueness mm-hmm. but then you look at the state you have you know the I-10 corridor is the marsh and then you have the delta which is East of here, and then you have the Piney Woods, which is in the northwest corner of or the north and central and west part of the state. That's three different, very distinct areas that a lot of states don't have that. And then mm-hmm. you have the river, you got two big rivers, you know, um, and that's something we talked about in the ag leadership class when we went to New Orleans about, you know, you got the largest inland port in the world. You got, I don't know how many railroads coming out of this state, but it's a bunch, and they all converge here to go to New Orleans or Baton Rouge. And mm-hmm. you got the Red River and the Mississippi River and the Ouachita River. So you got all those things come together, and, you know, you've got the influence of, of the Caribbean, the slaves, the music, people that were coming through here going west that ended up staying. There's just so many different people or groups of people that decided to stay here that you just don't get that. It's a melting pot within the melting pot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and as we're talking, we're, we're, we're also not mentioning the fact that we have the oil and gas. Oh yeah. The, the seafood. Oh yeah. That is unmatched yeah. across the country. Yeah. You can across the world probably. Mm-hmm. So again, going back to that, it's, there's no reason that we shouldn't be at the top of every list. Exactly. Places to live. Exactly. I mean, I, there's no other place I'd want to live. Right. Um, no other places I'd want to go and travel and tell stories of people in agriculture because it's so diverse and I can right. tell a forester story one day and a shrimper's the next. Exactly. Um, so I guess to wrap this up, another a final plea, echoing what you said and get involved politically. Mm-hmm. I, you mentioned it yesterday to our class. You reminded us what the lobbyist for Louisiana Farm Bureau says, Joe yeah, Mapes. Yeah, you're either, you're either at the table or on the menu. And and. Having heard that when I was in the class, I was like, you know what? The guy's right. And what's crazy, and this goes back to elected officials, if if a, if a representative gets 10 calls on something, that becomes a big deal. So literally 10 people could get together, say, hey, we're going to all call this guy this week and we're going to raise heck about a certain facet of an issue that only those 10 people care about. But that's the only 10 people he hears from. He thinks that's what everybody that he's voting to cover wants. He votes that way. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the 10,000 other people in his district are working and don't want that. Don't call. 
aren't informed and they get the short end of the stick because they didn't say anything. Mm. And, and that's what's what, and you learn this when you went to your DC trip, you know, like everybody I met with on that trip, I said, they'd say, what can we do for you? I said, the first thing you do is don't do anything. Like, I don't want anything. I want you to stay away. Like, leave me alone. And, and that was flabbergasting to them because they're in the industry of government and they are the solution to every problem, which is BS. But I, I would tell them, like, I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to do anything. Just leave me alone. They're like, what are you talking about? In fact, if you really want to do something, take some stuff off the books. Be less restrictive. But also learning that this country is run by a bunch of idealistic 25 to 30-year-old kids who they wrote a good paper. They were from a good family. They got to be a staffer. And now they're, they're this guy or ladies elected officials expert on agriculture. And they just wrote a paper in college, but they've never been on a farm. Mm-hmm. That's the people that are governing this country and they're governing through influence because now they're the expert for an elected official that never hears from a citizen. They were introducing us. Hey, this is Trey. He's a real person. Mm. I heard people say that happened to me three different times. You're a real person that represents every other person in the yeah. industry. Yeah. I mean, you're representing. But that's in the bubble of D.C. Mm-hmm. Who the it's literally and you don't realize until you go there and figure figure out these people are in the in, they're in the industry of governance. And a bunch of them don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They want to listen, but nobody's talking to them. They want to be infer- informed. That's yeah. one of the things that's impressive. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, they want to know. They're dependent on us. Right. And us making that call and being right. involved. So <clears throat> it's cool. It's, it's a good reminder because yeah. it's and easy it does, to forget. And it doesn't take very much. Yeah. I mean, like, how many things do you pick up the phone or send an email or write somebody on that they're going to vote and the way they vote is going to literally influence your life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, you, you just, we just sit here and take it. Yeah. And, and I just don't get it. Going back to what, I mean, it's easy to talk about it and say, okay, how in the world are we going to email a U.S. congressman and mm-hmm. it make a difference? But Google it. Back, but back to the parish level, even mm-hmm. the state level, mm-hmm. that really will affect your life. If all of a sudden you're getting, yeah, a, a, if one of your roads is not a gravel road and it's becoming an asphalt road, that, that affects your life. Right. Yeah. And it may mean you can't drive home that day. It's going right. to affect your life in, in a some way, way yeah. negative in some way. way. Yeah, absolutely. And you can be a part of that. Yeah. And that's what I think is pretty valuable to remember. I mean, it's well, and, huge. And yeah. And we've, we've forgotten that the people in government work for us. Mm-hmm. That There's no other place on the planet that it's like that. Mm-hmm. And I guess to give them a little bit of backup, most of the people I've ever spoken with, you know, in Louisiana delegations, mm-hmm. they remember that. At mm-hmm. least whenever we speak with them. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. And so yeah. we are fortunate in that, mm-hmm. but it is just the reality. Of, so I don't want to care, like overgeneralize and stuff. But no, you're right. They are humans, but it's it's neat to think about the fact that some of them do recognize that they do work for us. They oh, are, yeah. Are, Absolutely. Best way to be at the table is by having your voice heard. And that's by voting, by, right. you know, just uh, sharing your knowledge, sharing yeah. your expertise. So. You know, find out when that guy's going to be in his office or your elected official is going to be in the office and just drop in and say, hey, you know, I'm one of your constituents. I, this, I've heard this is coming up. What do you think about it? Mm-hmm. Or, or why Why do you think the way that you think? Yeah, give me, give me, give me what, what's going on in your head. Right. And, and, and they're going to – they should have the time and they should be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, 
and and I think if you hit them in a positive, professional way, at a good time, or, or maybe go back and talk to them. But my point is, if if you get the chance, make the effort to talk to them and figure out why. Mm. You know, because sometimes they voted a certain way because they've heard or they think that's what most people want. You know, so because those few people that made the call, right? Yeah. You know. Well, Trey, thank you for your service. Yep. As a Marine, thank you for 20 years around. Is that about what you've been serving? About, yeah. Most of your adult life. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you for what you do in the timber industry. Thanks for sharing your time today. Oh, yeah. Thanks for coming by here. You kind of went out of your way. So. A little bit. It's been but fun. I, it has been. I'm enjoying it. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. This was such a fun conversation. I know I learned a lot about the forestry industry, and I hope you found it interesting as well. If you'd like to see the conversation and not just listen, we have a full video of the interview, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes so you can go check it out right now. Again, thanks, Trey, first and foremost for your service to our country, but also for joining me on the podcast and sharing your story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening right now, and subscribe so you can stay up to date when we release a new episode. That feedback helps us out a lot. This podcast was produced by me, Carl Wiggers, and the Communications Department of the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. If you'd like to support this show, consider becoming a member of Louisiana Farm Bureau. Louisiana Farm Bureau is the voice of Louisiana agriculture.